Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The Brexit insanity moved off stage this week. Parliament was prorogued, MPs forced to stop their session. The House of Commons is not due to sit again until mid-October, so I thought it would be a good time to take a step-back view of the crisis the UK is in and ask Robin Lustig what he thought. Robin is the most judicious journalist I know. He's been helping to create the first rough draft of history for 40-plus years, most of them as the presenter of BBC World Service's NewsHour and Radio 4's The World Tonight. Before getting into broadcasting, he was the Observer's Middle East correspondent based in Beirut during Lebanon's hellish civil war. On a grayish late summer day, we met in Victoria Tower Gardens adjacent to the Houses of Parliament. While groups of schoolchildren scurried around, we sat on a bench, watching the tide come up the Thames, and looked for precedents, causes, and made comparisons between the crises of governance in the UK and the US. Have you ever seen the like? Never. And I'm not even sure if I was a generation older, I would have seen the like. As I was walking over to chat with you, we're sitting here, it's quiet today in the parliamentary precincts, just school children. There was a lone protester standing by the, the gates where automobiles drive down and deposit people in front of the, the entrance to parliament. And she was holding a sign that said, 9919 the day democracy died. And I thought, I don't know if she's a Remainer or a Brexiter. That's how crazy it is. You can't tell what side anybody represents unless they're tattooed. You can't, and it's really bizarre how this one word, democracy, has now become, I don't know, the sort of talisman for both sides of the argument. You have the pro-leave people saying, MPs are behaving undemocratically by seeking to overturn the result of a referendum. You have pro-Remain people saying the government is behaving undemocratically because they prorogued Parliament and prevented MPs from uh, having their say. And I think the explanation for that is actually that we've got two forms of democracy which are now colliding. You've got referendum democracy, plebiscitary democracy, whatever the word is, clashing with parliamentary democracy, representative democracy. Because we don't have a written constitution and never have had, nobody has actually ever worked out how these two forms of democracy can coexist. In the past, it hasn't really been a problem because in the past, the result of a referendum has never clashed with the majority view of elected MPs. When it clashes, as it has done over Brexit, you have a narrow majority of people in the referendum saying we want to leave, and you have a substantial majority of elected MPs saying we actually think it would be better to remain. What's the form of democracy that has precedence over which? We don't know, and that's what we're living through. But it's led to this what I find quite distressing, disintegration of the strands at the top of British society. I'm not talking about at the street end, where the issue of Europe has long had an emotive quality for you know, a certain kind of English nationalism, which is always there. When I got here in the 80s, it was expressed through football hooliganism. The sons of football hooligans are now protesting, demanding that we go out of the EU. They vote for Nigel Farage. 
they fight for Nigel Farage. I don't know if they can be bothered to vote. But it's at the top that the language has become violent. It's really horrible. And it actually does worry me, not only for the short term, but for the long term, because I think what we've been seeing probably over the last decade or more is a gradual increase in cynicism about the whole political process, an increase in lack of respect for the political process, a belief that politicians just aren't up to the job, and for goodness sake, there's enough evidence uh, in support of that, that argument. But it, you're right. I mean, what, what's emerged since the referendum is so much more than the way people feel about Britain's relations with the rest of Europe. It does seem to have taken the top off something that had been concealed. And I remember feeling very strongly the day after the referendum, not particularly that something had changed, but that something had been revealed that until then had not been evident in plain sight. And that's a sort of sense among certain sections of the UK population that the country and the world has changed in ways that they don't like. They hark back to a time when Britain had an empire when Britannia ruled the waves, when the Union Jack flew over countries all around the globe. It's a nostalgia which is turning to anger. When I was in secondary school, there was a far-right organization called the League of Empire Loyalists. And that was an organization, it preceded the National Front, the British National Party, and all of the far-right parties which came later. And they basically were resisting the dismantling of the British Empire. Uh, I was in school in the 1960s, and that was a period when the British Empire was, was disintegrating. All of the African and Asian nations were gaining their independence. But there was even then a small but nevertheless vocal group of people who thought that was a mistake, who wanted the empire to last forever. And I think an element of that still exists. People don't like what has happened as a result of globalization. They don't like what has happened as a result of the mass movement of finance, of business and of people. And they want to stop the clock. And that's why this whole Brexit thing I think is so significant and will live with us for decades to come because it goes, it, it, it taps into something which is almost impossible to define. It's not just about trade with Europe, it's about so much more. I was just reminded yesterday of a wonderful definition, slightly cynical definition of what makes up a nation. The definition of a nation is that it's a group of people united by a mistaken view of their past and a hatred of their neighbors. You've seen societies disintegrate. You've covered them. You lived in Beirut. I mean, I used to have on the wall of my office a huge poster when I was a Middle East correspondent, which was a beautiful aerial photograph of Beirut showing the Mediterranean, but also the Shouf Mountains to the east of the city. And it said in French, Beirut died a thousand times, reborn a thousand times. We Europeans have lived through, in the last hundred years, two world wars. Countries have been destroyed, countries have been rebuilt. I am by nature an optimist, and so the optimist in me says, however grave this crisis, we will somehow come through it, uh, because that's what countries do, that's what societies do. People 
want to live, they want to make good lives for themselves and their children, they want to do business. Somehow or other we will get through it. What I fear is that at the moment we are living through a period of crisis, people are getting more and more angry. If, I mean, let, let's just look to the future. Let's say in a year's time there is another referendum and the result is the opposite to the last referendum and so Britain stays in the EU. There will be anger among the people unhappy with that. They will want a third referendum and so it will go on and the Nigel Farage's of this world and who knows the Boris Johnson's of this world will will capitalize on that. They they will make hay with it. So we are going we are going through a really bad time. Yeah, I, I it reminds me more than anything of what happened in Paris over Alfred Dreyfus in the 1890s where the French Empire was at its height, there was lots of money, the city was the center of cosmopolitan culture in the world and this one event split society, especially the opinion formers in society, straight down the middle and World War I came they were still split. Even into the 1930s, you could line up the anti-fascists were all people who thought Dreyfus was innocent, and, and the ones who were quite happy to work with Vichy thought, well, Dreyfus was guilty. And, and this split can go on for decades. And that's, that does worry me because, you know, I've, we both have children, and the idea that they're going to have to spend the bulk of their adult lives in a society where it will be a test. Where did you stand on this crucial issue, Remain or Brexit? It seems crazy, but... It tells you so much more about a person than just asking them how they voted in the last election. You used to be able to say to people, oh, you know, I've always voted Conservative or I've always voted Labour, whatever, and then you'd carry on with your lives. I've been a political animal for as long as I can remember, from, from early childhood almost. Never before have I got to the point where I'm now at, which was when we're sitting with a group of friends, we say, can we just agree? We're not going to talk about Brexit, we're not going to talk about Trump, because we'll all get too upset and we'll all end up shouting at each other. To actually say to my nearest and dearest, let's not go there, is extraordinary, it's unprecedented. Well, since we're going there, what about the Trump Johnson connections. They both have stupid hair, they're both overweight, they both think they are genius politicians. They're wrong about that. I think there are some similarities, but I think there are more differences. Two differences that, that strike me. First of all, I think Trump knows that he is not going to be loved by people, but he's perfectly happy if he is feared by people. Uh, Johnson, on the other hand, wants to be loved. He wants everybody to think he is a really lovable guy. But one other thing that they have in common, if you look at the slogans uh, on whose coattails they have come to power, in Trump's case, make America great again. In Johnson's case, take back control. Both those slogans contain a word, again in the American case, back in the British case, which harken back, which say to people, look back to what we were, let's be that again. There is a hearkening back, a, an appeal to a mistaken false memory. And that they do have in common, and what they're, they're both very good at playing on it, on expo exploiting it, and uh, coming to power on it. They both have a transactional relation to the truth. <laughs> That's a very nice way of putting it. Um, Johnson is one of the very few journalists who were fired for making something up. 
Um, he was fired from his first medium-level political post for having lied to his party leader. This is a man who has made a career out of blatant lying. Donald Trump's record is, is well known enough. Uh, their transactional relationship to the truth, they don't care whether what they say is true or not because they think if they say it, that's what matters. If Johnson says we are engaged in detailed negotiations with Brussels, he knows that's not true. Brussels knows that's not true, but he thinks enough British voters will want to believe it to be true. We know from everything that's happened in politics over the last several years that people will believe what they want to believe. And even if they are shown incontrovertible facts which contradict what they believe, they will carry on believing it. Oh, we don't believe the experts. Oh, but there are different versions of facts. Or, you know, the famous alternative facts from going back to Trump's inauguration. So facts no longer matter in the way that they did. Truth no longer matters in the way that they did. And for us as journalists, that is a pretty existential threat. If people aren't interested in what's true and what isn't true, what are we wasting our time doing? How do we deal with this? During all the decades that you worked at the BBC, you were scrupulously neutral. And I just wonder if you're happy that you don't have to present news programs anymore, because when the first sentence is likely to be an untruth, the premise of his answer is, is demonstrably a lie, but you're under the obligation to let him speak. I don't envy my former colleagues one bit. It must be so difficult to have to report fairly, accurately, and in context, things that you know not to be true. All you can say is, this is what the Prime Minister said, this is what the President said, however, one, two and three, here are the facts. And that is a real problem. I think on certain subjects, for example, climate change, uh, the anti-vax campaign, those sorts of things, the BBC has worked out how to do it. You don't have to find a balance between truth and falsehood, which is always a nonsense. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad I no longer am constrained in that jacket, although I understand why a public service institution like the BBC, which is paid for by a compulsory levy on everybody who owns a TV set, I understand why they have to be fair and balanced. Not in the Fox News sense of fair and balanced, but fair and balanced in the BBC sense. But I, th I, I think journalism hasn't yet worked out how to deal with politicians who are blatant liars. All politicians have told lies. They have usually tried to conceal the fact that they are, they are telling lies. This current bunch don't care that everybody knows they're lying. They lie anyway. So one last question. Parliament is prorogued. Nothing happening in, in the buildings just behind us. And I just wonder what do you think might happen when they finally come back in a little under five weeks? It's going to be utter bedlam, isn't it? Well, that's a precise prediction. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. You're very welcome. Let's talk again on November the 1st. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots, lots more at the website please visit, and while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.